Hi everyone, welcome to FebRow, the culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm your host, Sarah Dong. Today is our third of four episodes in the second edition of the Curious Congenital Conundrum series. If you haven't been caught up, make sure to check out episodes 79 and 80 before this. Our co-host today is Dr. Lizzie O'Mahony. She is a pediatric trainee working in London with an interest in ID, and she just started a year as a pediatric clinical research fellow with the Oxford Vaccine Group. Our discussant today is Dr. Felicity Fitzgerald. She is a senior clinical research fellow in the section of pediatric infectious diseases and an honorary consultant in pediatric ID at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. All right, let's get started. As everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we would love to hear a little piece of culture or something that you have enjoyed recently or that brings you happiness. Um, Maybe, Lizzie, I could start with you. Um, Yeah. Um, So I've been trying to read books from different places around the world, and I've just read one from Indonesia called Beauty is a Wound, which I've really enjoyed. It was a really good novel. And what about you, Felicity? So yeah, slightly less highbrow than that. Um, I have been <laughs> loving Succession on Netflix, which is just the most fantastic TV and incredible script writing. And I think I normally find kind of those kind of high tension things a bit too stressful. But I think because mm-hmm. the characters were all a bit awful, I wasn't so invested yeah. <laughs> in their outcomes. So I was able to just watch it and really enjoy the show for the entertainment value. No, amazing, amazing <laughs> TV. <laughs> Yeah, there are definitely parts of it where I'm like, I'm not totally sure I understand what's going on, but all the characters are so entertaining and, like you said, awful people. Yes. That, um, it keeps you coming back yes. <laughs> to watch. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, let me hand it over and you can tell us about the case. Great. So uh, I am a relatively new paediatric infectious diseases consultant working in London in the UK at a hospital called St. Mary's. And um I was working during the week with a very keen SHO, which is one of the more junior train, like a relatively junior trainee who is Lizzie. And uh, the phone had been ringing all afternoon with referrals and the, the, the middle grade was quite overwhelmed with other things. And I turned to Lizzie and I was like, Lizzie, do you want to take this one? And she was like, yes, yes, I do. I'll take this call. So he handed the phone over to Lizzie and she was gone for a really long time. And <laughs> uh, this is the story that she came back with. So um, I took the referral and often these referrals are sort of quite quick questions, which is kind of what I was hoping for. Um, But instead, I actually started to get this story from a doctor uh, from a district general a little bit um, outside of London. And they started with this story. And I quite quickly realized that actually this was not a quick question. And this was going to be a quite long history of something that had actually been going on for months rather than days. Um, So they started telling me about this child who was a two month old male infant. He'd been having persistent fevers for about four or five weeks now. And they'd started about a day after their initial BCG vaccination. Um, But they'd been intermittent and they'd stayed well. um, So parents hadn't really done much about it. About a week later, they first they'd come into the hospital um, and they'd looked really well. But because they were a young infant with a recorded fever in the emergency department, they did a partial septic screen. So they started IV antibiotics. Um, they sent bloods, they waited on a lumbar puncture because, as I said, their baby looked quite well, um, but they sent swabs and they admitted them. Uh, and at this time, the baby, uh, swabs came back noting that the baby was COVID positive. 
Um, but otherwise, there weren't any other respiratory viruses picked up. So um, flu A and B and RSV were all negative. Uh, the blood cultures were negative. A urine culture that was sent was negative. Um, and a skin swab around the umbilicus, where there was a small granuloma noted, but that looked fine, um, showed some skin flora with Staph aureus, but nothing else. The blood test from the baby at this point had shown a slightly low hemoglobin of 89 um, and slightly low platelets of 121, but fairly normal white cells with a slightly low neutrophil count under the normal of one, but not um, nothing exciting, and a C-reactive protein of 42, um, which was a bit raised and possibly in keeping with a COVID uh, infection. And at the time, the baby was had 36 hours of IV antibiotics, everything came back negative and they were discharged home. A couple of days later, they'd come back into the emergency department um, because they'd still been spiking. And again, they'd still remained well in themselves, but the parents were concerned that despite these antibiotics, the baby was still spiking temperatures. Um, on this time in the admission in the emergency department, the granuloma was felt to be oozing a little bit. And since it had previously grown the staph aureus on a swab, the emergency team decided to give the baby some oral flucloxacillin to treat this possible infection and send them home. So they were discharged from the emergency department with five days of oral antibiotics. About 10 days later, they came back in. And this is now the third admission. We're now talking about a month down the line. Um, and the baby was febrile again. And at this point, the decision was to admit them to they've look at, and look at their fever history in a lot more detail. And at this point, they've now had fever for 14 of the past 21 days. So not quite every day, but frequently enough that it is becoming a concern. And this is despite a course of IV and a course of oral antibiotics. This is about three or four weeks post the initial COVID um, swab being positive. So not suggestive of still being involved in that infection. On this admission, they had a full septic screen, including so blood cultures, urine culture and a lumbar puncture. Repeat viral swabs were sent for everything and intravenous antibiotics were restarted. They also started to think about doing more extensive investigations and also getting further history and going into it in a bit more detail. So first of all, looking at the background, so getting a bit more information on this baby. So this is the first baby of Nigerian parents. They were born at term. There were no problems in pregnancy. There were no problems at delivery. This baby was born in 2022, and mum had been in the UK since 2019 when she'd moved from Nigeria. Um, since moving to Nigeria, since moving over in 2019, she'd had no overseas travel. She'd not been back to Nigeria. She'd not been out of the country otherwise. And during the pregnancy, she'd been well. She'd had no illnesses. Scans and serology had all been normal. During the pregnancy, she'd not had any unwell contacts. Um, there was no one that she'd come across that she knew of that had any illnesses. Same with uh, the father was well at home. Nobody else lived at home. Um, although they did have uh, mum's mum visiting at the time. Um, and the baby themselves were, was thriving. So looking at the growth charts, head circumference, weight, they were growing along the 50th centile. Um, they were doing the, sorry, they were growing along the 75th centile. Um, they were doing really well. There weren't any concerns in terms of obviously limited milestones because they're very young, but they were all fine. Um, so these investigations, so the, uh, Admitting hospital had still was still managing all of this, still um, going on with this, and they they did some more investigations. So uh, they sent virology, and it showed that the baby was still COVID positive, um, but again nothing else. They sent HIV, Hep A, B, C, CMV, all came back as negative. The EBV result did come back as IgG positive, 
Um, but the, all of the remaining cultures, the blood, urine and CSF cultures all came back as negative as well. They did a chest x-ray, which didn't really show anything very exciting. They did an ultrasound of the abdomen, which showed the spleen was on the higher end of normal, but nothing else. The rest of their bloods looked not all that exciting. Um, the hemoglobin did continue to trend down. So it was originally 89 and it had come down to 67 by this admission. Um, which is below the normal, but again, a common phenomenon in this age group. The platelets as well had stayed sort of ranging between about 120 to 170, and on this admission were 125, and the white cells had never become abnormal. The C-reactive protein had gone up slightly. Um, it had gone from 42 to 59 in those few weeks, but again, not shot up. Um, and the ESR, the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, was raised at 80. Um, as well as the ferritin also being raised at 933. Um, so at this point, with all of these investigations on the third admission investigating for fever, is when they decided to call the infectious disease team. I'll hand over to Felicity to talk a little bit about uh, what we did next. Yeah, so when Lizzie renewed the story back to me, it was obviously quite a concerning one. And um, you know, as an infectious diseases person, you know, the things that you are most worried about is um in this age group, like is this is this actually not an infection? Is this something else? So the things that I was most worried about was, um, could this be a, an immune deficiency? So the evidence that we had for that was we had this apparent persistent COVID. We had the ongoing fever. We had, well, we had this granuloma with the staph aureus, you know, like, is that just normal or was that something more to worry about? Um, uh, and uh, the, yeah, again, this kind of the, obviously the persistent fevers. The um, other thing, the things that was reassuring from the perspective of uh, severe immune deficiency is that this baby was thriving. So it was growing really nicely along the centiles. And uh, so that, again, the, the kinds of the skids that I've seen before, the severe immune deficiency babies that I've seen before, they do have multiple pathogens, but also they really are not doing well in terms of thriving. So that was quite reassuring, but not reassuring enough that I wasn't going to check for it. So um, we'd ruled out HIV, which is great, but we definitely needed to dig more into this baby's um, immune function. And could this be a malignancy? Again, you have this downtrending of the um, uh, hemoglobin. The platelets are a bit low. Uh, the neutrophils started at 0.7, but they were never really that high. So um, on this latest admission, they were 1.2. So the borderline, have we got like more than one cell line involved here? And then the other thing that raises his head with its uh, persistent um, inf with these persistent fevers and um, this borderline spleen size as well is could this be, be HLH? So the things I was most worried about were skid, malignancy, HLH, and then potentially something like TB as well. But again, wouldn't necessarily protect, uh, uh, present in this kind of a uh, in this kind of a format. <clears throat> again, thinking could it be something other than infection or immune deficiency? Could this be something um, metabolic? Could this be something um, autoimmune? Some other. Uh, inborn error of metabolism or something. So again, making sure we're ticking off our surgical sieve and we're not missing anything when we're thinking we can get very bogged down in our infections here. Um, so we there were various things that we asked the um uh, that we asked the local hospital to do again. So um, which they then reported back on. So we asked them to check uh, immunoglobulins. We asked them to check lymphocyte subsets. We asked them to send an IGRA. We recommended saying autoantibodies, uh, triglycerides and cholesterol. Um, again, just making sure we're not missing anything from the HLH perspective. Um, let's do an echo, make sure we're not missing anything there. Um, 
culture everything again. We always want everything to be cultured at least three or four times. So sending blood cultures, throat cultures. Um, uh, they sent over the chest X-ray to us and it was reassuring thinking about immune deficiency that this uh, baby did have a thymus. So that was great. And again, with my um, anxiety about malignancy, they'd already had a normal blood film. But I said, well, do, just send it again, just in case, just send it again. Like So anyway, so they sent the blood film again um, uh, and went off to go and re- do these other tests and uh, things. And then um to call us back and let us know how this baby was getting on. I was getting to the point where I thought we probably should have this baby with us. So I'd already mooted the idea of them being transferred to us for us to do further investigations. I was thinking that potentially this ba- this baby might need a bone marrow depending on how, um, how things were progressing with them. And then I actually handed over to another colleague for the night shift. And um, she's also quite a new consultant. And she called me at 10.30 that night and she was like, yeah, so I've got this result and I'm not sure if I believe it. And I was like, what? What's the result? She was like, they think they've got malaria. And I was like, what? Is that even like, <laughs> is that even, a, how, what? This, you know, this family had not traveled for two years in the run up to this, this mother being pregnant. She hadn't been out of this fairly rural beat bit of the UK for the whole of her pregnancy and for at least a year beforehand. She hadn't had any febrile episodes during the pregnancy. Like that just, it seemed to be a kind of crazy idea. And also this baby was well, like, you know, that from what I've heard about congenital malaria before, these babies are really super sick. Like how could this baby have got to six, now eight weeks of age and actually be fine with congenital malaria? And so we thought about it and I actually rang my colleagues at the um, hospital for tropical diseases and the first thing they said were we don't deal with children you guys deal with children we don't know anything about children and I was like I don't want to no no I don't need advice about the child I need advice about the malaria like you know is this because what we had reported was that this was plasmodium malariae as opposed to falciparum or any of the other ones and my question was like you know is this a thing that p malaria can do because it's not something that I'd particularly heard of or knew about before like is this is this a feasible thing that this mother can have been absolutely fine the whole way through her pregnancy and somehow managed to have a congenital transmission of malaria and they were like well yeah it's feasible I mean we were it's all credit to the biomedical scientist who was in that lab who picked it up because we weren't asking the question does this have this baby have malaria we're asking the question does this baby have malignancy and yet they still spotted it and this isn't necessarily a hospital that does an awful lot of films looking for malaria so I think it was and you know initially I have to say that gave me a bit of doubt about whether this was like a true diagnosis or not but um as it was they were spot on and absolutely right. And we had the signs, uh, we had the um, the slides sent from the uh, local to our National Malaria Reference Lab, who by that point were all really excited about it as well, and um, had them look at it. And so had them check the microscopy and then do PCRs, which um, confirmed the diagnosis of P. malariae. At this point, we had, so we'd spoken to the local and said that they needed to start treatment. So um, uh, ACT orally, because the baby was very well, uh, but we wanted the baby to be transferred to us anyway. So the baby was on their way down uh, to come and see us. So then we did a bit of further history taking with mum. And just actually to say that one of, I think what's really nice about this case is that it's one of the few times when a rare and unexpected diagnosis actually came as really good news. So, you know, out of all the things this baby could have had, like malaria was actually really good because it was so treatable, you know, in comparison to say skid or HLH or a malignancy or even TB, like, you know, this is something that we can really get on top of. And um, 
uh, speaking to the mother who I should add has given consent for us to do to tell this story um, that was one of the things she reported back being very relieved about actually that this was you know this was malaria this is something that is treatable um, and going a bit more into her history, she had had um, multiple courses of malaria during her life, which she had had uh, managed with um, oral ACT. But she had not had any feverish episodes during pregnancy in the last three years. So um, we did then ask, you know, has she had any visitors from overseas? And um, her mother had been in, um, had travelled over to come and see them. And that raised the whole question, like, could this be a mosquito in the suitcase kind of vibe as opposed to like a congenital malaria but um, actually we subsequently did um, PCRs on mum as well and she did have although her blood film was negative she had er evidence of um, uh, P. malaria on her PCRs so it does look like this is confirmed P. malaria congenital transmission so super rare and good news amazing so um, I don't know if I want to pass back to you Lizzie for to carry on about the treatment so uh, so when the baby was transferred over to us, um, they were started on treatment um, and they were initially started on um, oral artemisin combination therapy. And then we actually gave them IV artesanate as well. Um, we did actually wind up giving them another course of uh, antibiotics because we were a bit concerned about a super added bacterial infection because their CLP had kind of jumped up again when they came to us. Um, so we wound up giving them a few days of IVs and then switched to an oral course to finish off. Um, and they remained very well. They stayed very well. And actually, after three days of treatment, their repeat blood films had become negative and you couldn't see any malaria uh, parasites anymore. And we sent off PCR tests as well and followed them up a month later with repeat PCR tests, which all remained negative. Hooray! <laughs> yes and speaking to the mother recently this baby is thriving so actually this is all um a serendipitous discovery of something very unexpected that um has actually turned out really well which is great so yeah just to think a bit more about um congenital malaria in general I think what was really unexpected here was the the lack of the travel history because again you know that we would expect we might have expected the mother we would have expected the mother to have had um uh either an episode of malaria during pregnancy or to be living in an endemic area, whereas this mother hadn't been anywhere near Nigeria for three years. Um, of course, most cases of congenital malaria will um, take place in um, endemic areas, but usually to women who are not living in them all the time, because um, the idea is that actually maternal autoantibodies will um, protect the baby and, and prevent transplacental transmission of, um, of malaria. So, it's I think it's about 10 times as more likely for you to um, contract for you to be able to pass on congenital malaria if you are a woman who is not from um, a high an endemic area in comparison to somebody who's there all the time. So we can see there is a, a great deal of protectiveness in those um, uh, maternal antibodies. Um, in general, the, of course, the most common uh parasite that you would see would be P. falciparum and that's in part a function of um, quite how common P. falciparum is um, in terms of epidemiology and normally this would be really quite a serious illness in these neonates that will present 
probably about 10 days after the baby is born, but could be up to a month and would be with uh, severely high fevers and um, with hepatosplenomegaly and with anemia and liver dysfunction. So again, the, it might be a little bit more, you would hope it might be a, little, a bit more obvious. Again, you know, the risk is, is when this is a mother who has traveled during pregnancy, but normally lives in a non-endemic area where like us, it wasn't necessarily something that would be top of your list to test for. And again, this baby would need uh a rapid treatment with um, either ACT or um, IVR tessinate, depending on how on how well they are. Um, just a thing to note: um, thinking about P malaria in like in particular, it it does appear. I mean, there's been very little research on it and its uh, susceptibility to um, uh, anti-malarial treatment. It looks like it may be more resistant to ACT than other um, uh, than other strains of um, plasmodium, which might be why this mother still had um, persistent parasites despite having her previous courses of ACT. But um, it does look like both mother and uh, mother and baby have cleared it now. So that's good. Yeah. So uh, just thinking in a bit more detail about um, treatment of um, malaria. So um, P. malaria isn't um, isn't a strain that produces uh, hypnozoite. So you wouldn't need to think about primaquine afterwards. The ones that you would want to think about um, a treatment of primaquine afterwards to make sure you were getting rid of a hypnozoite would be Vivax or a, or a Vale. So uh, that wasn't something we needed to think about there. And that that actually was a bit, it feels a bit counterintuitive because P. malaria is a, is a parasite that we know can last for a very very long time in the bloodstream and kind of instinctively in my head I thought that was probably because it produced hypnozoites but it doesn't it's not hypnozoites it's just that it um, can continue to live in the bloodstream at very low levels um, and in general it is not as it it doesn't cause a serious disease as um, uh, falciparum would do so it produces far fewer daughter cells I think it's something like one to eight as opposed to as opposed to like one to 32 or 48, which would be falciparum. And the uh, reproduction cycle is longer. So 72 hours as opposed to 24 to 32 hours. Sorry, I've segued a bit away from treatment there. Um, but coming back, <laughs> coming back to the treatment. Um, so of course, with these infants, you not only need to think about the um, anti-malarial therapy, but you need to be making sure you're supporting them in other ways as well. And that uh, with malaria is just like really excellent supportive therapy. So making sure they are that you have decent fluid balance. Um, they're not too overloaded because we know that can be dangerous for these neonates. Um, uh, monitoring for signs of hemolysis, um, expecting that we're going to have some hemoglobinuria and not being surprised when their pee looks dark because that is hemoglobinuria as opposed to um, hemolysis. But again, just you know, keeping an eye on that and monitoring their liver function um, and uh, supporting them kind of as and when. But these, uh, this neonates did really well and um, uh, didn't need any further supportive therapy, which was which was great. So then I think to move on to thinking about um, prevention. So um, it's, you know, the thing about malaria is how much it can be reduced by actually these quite, hopefully quite sustainable methods like things like insect treated nets and um, avoiding bites, uh, which is which is great. And yet still there can be difficulties in accessing nets and needing to maintain nets, making sure that they are dipped regularly in your insecticide, making sure they don't have holes in them. Again, this can all mean that it's actually much more complicated than it seems to be on the outside. Um, 
there has been talk about using uh, intermittent preventative therapy for pregnant women. So the recommendations are that um, women living in endemic areas who are HIV negative should receive intermittent preventative therapy for um, malaria. So should receive um, uh, sulfadoxine pyrimethamine to um, prevent malaria during pregnancy and therefore limit the uh, risk of congenital malaria as well as protecting her own health. Um, in general, the advice is, is that uh, to try to get avoid avoid being bitten during pregnancy, um, and particularly for women thinking about traveling during pregnancy to malaria endemic areas. I mean, to be honest, when my friends ask me, should I be going to a malarial area when I'm pregnant? My answer is like, well, not if you don't have to. It's much easier just to avoid going at all rather than to avoid being bitten. Um, or then you get into the thorny issue of what kinds of what kinds of prophylaxis is a good idea to take or not when you're pregnant. Um, Particularly if you're from a non-endemic area and you can avoid it, then it probably is sensible to avoid the travel. Otherwise, just being really meticulous with wearing long sleeves, um, making sure that you are um, uh, going to that you are using uh, bed nets and uh, not going out at peak times for being bitten. So dawn and dusk. In general, for um, the vast majority of the world who doesn't have the choice of moving away from a non-malarial area, it's um, uh, often a question of things of like trying to remove habitats. So trying to minimise um, pools of water. So things like old tyres or the tops of cans or anywhere where these um, pools of water can be where um, the, where the um, mosquitoes can then breed. Uh, usually at the end, I sort of leave it open in case there are things that you either uh, didn't fit somewhere else that you want to mention or that are sort of take-home points for you. And that can be specific to the case or it can be more general. Like this is a pretty, un- right, it's also pretty unusual even outside of what the diagnosis was to have sort of a true FUO really in a, in a baby this young. And I think like you were saying, a lot of the stuff that comes to mind at that age range often is not, your worry is that it's not an infection. Um, and I think that was a really nice learning point for um, people who are in pediatrics and, and maybe getting calls like this. Um, I think for me, like one of the biggest learning points that I took away from this, as apart from it being a very interesting first infectious diseases referral to take, um, was thinking about the history and thinking about including things like a travel history, actually, I think at the time I probably would have thought, oh, you know, two-month-old baby, they don't have a travel history, very easy. But actually going a little bit further, especially when you are thinking about congenital infections in that kind of neonatal period, to really think about the travel history that, you know, she hadn't been out of the country in the last few months, but actually just knowing her whole travel history, knowing where she had lived, and knowing sort of about her history there as well, really did add to the case in the end to kind of explain how this had come about. Yeah, absolutely. There's a reason that we're so pedantic about like, are you sure? Have they really never traveled anywhere? Like, So yeah, that thing. I think probably for my final thoughts, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, this was an example of, um, I think, really great teamwork. So both from the uh, local hospital who made the referral and uh, particularly their lab staff were picking up this really unusual infection. And then we had really nice um, supportive liaisons with the uh, National Malaria Reference Laboratory um, who were really supportive and helping us, you know, helping us manage this um, very unusual case. But in particular, it working with this family and particularly how supportive they've been of um, allowing us to use this case for um, further learning points and um, that they've just been really keen that um, 
that we understand more about this case and that other doctors in our position also understand more about this case so um, that in the future other cases similar to their child's can be picked up sooner. So I'm, well, I think we're all really grateful to them for lending their support uh, to us doing things like this podcast and other teaching. Yeah, and there are so many other points along the way that you touched on, like um, when you're concerned about an umbilical cord abnormality or infection, how that can sort of be a, a flag for something else. Mm-hmm. Did we, in this baby, did we talk about BCG during the along the way, I think, right? Oh, did, yeah. Did we a, forgot that. They had, so they had, or oh, maybe you did say it, Lizzie, and I just missed it. So they had the BCG just before. I think you might have mentioned it. Yeah, I think yeah, the fever so the started BC, like the week yeah. after the BCG. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it was like yeah. a day, I think it was the next day. So it did, it yeah. did kind of at the beginning was a bit of a kind of, it just see, it seemed important because of the timing. Um, and yeah. it was definitely something to think about, especially when we were thinking about the sort of immunodeficiency problem. Yeah, I knew there was another um, reason I was where, worried about skid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's because I think those are all those sort of uh, things that often you read about, but depending on like which patients you happen to see when you're in hospital, it may not come up. But I think there were so many sort of flags along the way that would have really pushed you to think about immunodeficiency um, rather than this sort of less common uh, and I should rephrase that. It's not truly a less common infection, but a less common presentation <laughs> of an infection that we we know is very, in general, common, but not in this setting. Yeah, exactly. Particularly in an endemic setting. Yeah. Thanks so much to Lizzie and Felicity for sharing this case. And if you did want to hear a little bit more about malaria, for those Uh, adult-oriented listeners who are still hanging in there. We had a prior episode on febrile number 47, which uh, discussed fever and returning traveler and more learning points about malaria specifically. Like always, don't forget to check out the website febrilepodcast.com where you'll find the consult notes, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next week.